to the book of Acts, chapter 2. The book of Acts, chapter 2. I'm going to read this morning from verses 37 to 47. This is not going to be the only text that we will uh, look at this morning, just like last week will be in various different passages, but I want to begin this morning by reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 47. Context that Peter has just been preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is being poured out in power, and now the people are asking him, as we've heard the gospel, what must we do? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they heard Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day. About 3,000 souls. There were. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Would you pray? Father, we praise you because in your providence and in your will, once you, have re- once you had raised Jesus from the dead and once he had ascended to your right hand, you poured out your spirit and raised up the beginnings of your church. A church, Jesus says, the gates of hell shall never prevail. Father, we witness here what it is to be a local church. To devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God, to devote ourselves to prayer, to devote ourselves to fellowship and to breaking bread with one another, to the Lord's Supper. Lord, You have not left us confused in any way 
about what your church is and about what it does in this world. And so, Father, I pray for this morning as we seek to hear from You in Your Word about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. What it means to be a part of the local church. And Father, I pray that You would soften our hearts. Give us the hearts of these new believers in Acts chapter 2 who made it their new devotion to submit themselves to one another and ultimately to the authority and the headship of Christ Himself. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are in our second sermon of a four-part series that we began last week looking at what Scripture says about church membership and discipline. And as we saw last week, these are just two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other, at least not any in any biblical sense. So we began last week by looking at church membership specifically, which all that means, all church membership means, is simply a, a reference to the practice and belief that Jesus has given to the church, the local church, as an assembled local body of people, the authority to declare who is and who is not the church. That's the authority He has given to the church. It has the authority to receive believers into its fellowship through baptism, recognizing that whoever it is who presents themselves for baptism is now making a profession of faith, is now saying, I am seeking to follow and obey Christ. And as the local church hears this confession and examines this confession and this person's new life in Christ, baptizes them and receives them through baptism into the membership of the church. The church has the authority to continue to recognize members as disciples as it continually bears witness to who is and who is not the church through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. That's one of the functions of the Lord's Supper. not just to remember the work of Christ, but to serve as a continued declaration by the local church of who is and who is not a part of the body. And it has the authority to remove members from its fellowship. And here I mean not just in the sense of people move away and we transfer and we do all of these things. Here I am referring to the actual practice of church discipline, which we will look at more in the coming weeks, wherein a local church is having to address the very real reality of unrepentant sin in its midst. The command, as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 5, is that if a brother or sister is continuing in unrepentant sin, continuing to deny the life-transforming power of the Gospel by their unrepentant life, the church is under obligation to remove that person from its fellowship. So just as it has the authority to receive, it also has the authority to remove 
Now, a local church does not have the authority and it does not have the power to save. It's a very needed clarification. What it has been given is simply the authority to use sound biblical judgment and to look at a person's fruit. The fruit of their confession, the fruit of their life and obedience to Jesus, and the fruit of their doctrine, and using the witness of Holy Scripture, declare who is and who is not the church. Not the power to save, but the power and authority to recognize based on the fruit that they see. So last week we looked at several different passages to see the biblical foundation of church membership. Passages such as 1 Corinthians 5, Acts 5, 11 and following, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 and following, and there's many other texts that we could reference as well. And we saw that these passages either assume, imply, or require the practice of church membership. So if you weren't here last week for that, or you want to go back through it again, we've posted that message up on our website. You can just pull it up there. You can pull it up on the podcast. You can go back through it, listen to it again. Today, we're taking the next step. And we're seeing this morning what Scripture says about the duties and benefits that church members have by virtue of their church membership. Duties and benefits. And I chose that word duty on purpose. Very purposefully. It's a word that you don't find used very much anymore in Christian contexts. And that is to our detriment. In many contexts, Christians have embraced an understanding of the gospel and of grace that does not demand anything of anyone. It's an idea that the gospel is simply a message that God loves you just the way you are and that all you need to do is to believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven. There's no call to repentance. There's no call to reform. There's no call to obedience. It's not a call to faith and repentance. It's just a call to have faith. And the faith is unbiblically defined. I remember a certain well-known youth minister in Birmingham who started a ministry that met on Wednesdays at different churches that attracted thousands of youth every month. They met week after week, but every month you would have a total of thousands of youth coming to hear this youth minister preach. And one of his slogans that we would often use, and he would say part of it, and then the the youth would then say the other part of it, one of the slogans and one of the main doctrines of his preaching was this. We're not perfect, we're just, and then the crowd would say, forgiven. We're not perfect, we're just forgiven. A statement which 
has indeed an appearance of accuracy, but it falls woefully short of the gospel. Woefully short. The message fed into a false notion that God places no real demands on your life. That there's no real call to repent and to flee from immorality. When the Apostle Paul, for example, writes in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God for you. You want to know the will of God? You want to know how to please God and to walk in accordance with God? Flee sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality. That is a real call to repent. A real demand on a person's life. And, and, and as you obey that, you please God as your heavenly Father. But in this man's preaching and in this slogan, there's no room for that. There's no call to abstain and to flee from sin. And to use the Apostle Paul's language, there's no real idea of putting to death the deeds of the body. So Paul calls us to do as believers and disciples of Christ, Romans chapter 8, to mortify the flesh, to make war against our sin. This was absent from the preaching. So it was not surprising several times when I went to this event as a new believer, it was not surprising to walk into these so-called worship gatherings and find many of the youth trained in these false gospel notions making out with each other in the pews during the service. No call to repent. Only a call to indulge and to sin more that grace may abound. Only a call to sin without guilt. Grace had been turned into a license to sin without conviction of sin. So I think we need to recover the language of Christian duty. Because duty refers to moral obligations. And Christians have been summoned into a new way of living which has moral obligations. Just as every soldier has duties in the military, so also does every Christian as a soldier in the kingdom of Christ have duties given to them by their king. This is why we read the Great Commission this morning. Biblical disciple-making requires obedience to the commands of Christ. If we are not helping one another, if we are not stirring one another, if we are not calling one another to obey Christ, because we have a wrong understanding of the Gospel, a wrong understanding of what obedience is in the Christian life, we are not fulfilling the Great Commission. We are teaching another Gospel. 
Jesus said in the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them, in other words, that as disciples you have a duty to follow your King, to imitate Him, and to obey Him. So that's what I want to look at this morning, and I just want to ask the question to begin, what are the duties that we have as members of His church? Well, to put it simply, the duties of a church member are simply the duties of a Christian. In the Bible, to be a Christian is to be a church member. And to be a church member, you must be a Christian. There's no such thing in the entire New Testament as a Christian who does not unite themselves to and submit themselves to the local church. You won't find that. But since we're looking at the duties of church members this morning, and rather than just saying, obey all of the New Testament it may be helpful to distinguish between our duties of worship and our duties towards the congregation, duties towards one another. As for our duties of worship, baptism falls under this category. Baptism is a requirement for every Christian. It has no mystical saving power in and of itself. It doesn't magically cleanse you of sin or do anything like that, but it is a religious act of worship that Christ commands every single disciple to undergo. So in the Great Commission, again, he says that part of making disciples of all nations is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You're not making an actual disciple unless this baptism is going forth. Baptism is also the way that disciples publicly enter into the church. That's how we become members of local churches. So in Acts chapter 2, as we read earlier, we find Peter preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And when the people hear it, many of them believe and they cry out to Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, you must repent and be baptized. And then after he instructs them and what they must do, and he gives to them some other promises, we read this in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 New believers in Christ were added as new additions to the church in Jerusalem. And they were recognized as new additions because of their baptism. That's that's what brought them into the state of being a new addition and part of the 3,000 souls. So as we're thinking about church membership Together, one of the reasons baptism is important is because this is how a new believer joins a local church. It's not just by 
filling out an information card or a membership card, right? These things can be very helpful in helping a local church account for who its members are, but that's not how you actually become a member of a church. You become a member of a church through baptism. And then, of course, if you have been baptized already and you're uniting with some other church, that church is recognizing and should be asking, have you been baptized before? Another duty of worship that we have is the Lord's Supper. So if baptism is the act of worship that joins us to a local church, the Lord's Supper is an act of worship that represents our ongoing communion and fellowship with the local church. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper in more detail in a couple of weeks as we look at what Scripture teaches about the process of church discipline because it's very much related to that. But suffice it to say that the Lord's Supper is not only an ordinance by which we remember the saving work of Christ and we celebrate the new covenant together, but it's also the way the local church publicly testifies to the presence of saving faith among its members. When the church gives the supper to an individual, it is saying... We believe that this person who is partaking of the supper is a true believer in Christ. We are sharing communion with them. He's a member of the new covenant. She's a member of the new covenant. He or she's a disciple of Christ and a member of His church. And we are recognizing them through the Lord's Supper. When the church withholds the supper from an individual... It is saying to that person, you cannot participate in this because you're not walking in obedience to Christ. Which may be, they've never professed to believe in Christ. That's an act of disobedience. Or it may be, as we saw last week, 1 Corinthians 5, a sexually immoral person who's not fleeing from sin. We have no reason, no right and no authority to continue to recognize that person as a believer and to continue to give them the supper. So the church is saying you can't participate in this because you're not walking in obedience to Christ, and therefore we have no evidence that you truly know Him. You are out of communion with Him and with His church. This is where we get the word excommunication from. Ever heard the word excommunication? Excommunication does not mean execution or exile, like it might have meant in the medieval church. Excommunication simply means out of communion. And when a person is excommunicated, it means they are out of communion or the fellowship of the church, and as a consequence, they are not to participate in communion. Or the Lord's Supper. So that's the visible, constant way that the church has been given the authority to recognize who is and who is not the church. So baptism, Lord's Supper, duties of worship. But another one that we should include here is hearing the Word of God. This is not an option. This is a duty. This is what we are called to do as believers in Christ. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. 
Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-3, to I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom... Sounds like whatever he's about to say is very important. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The preaching and teaching and hearing of the Word of God is arguably the central act of worship in the life of a believer. It is here where God speaks to us clearly. And it is in His Word that He speaks to us with authority. It is how our sin is exposed and rebuked and corrected. It's how our hearts are encouraged. It's where we find the power and the guidance to live in accordance with the will of God. It is the very means ordained by God by which we grow in Christ's likeness and holiness. There is no holiness apart from the Word of God. So yes, this is a duty. This is a command. This is a moral obligation for every Christian to be under the regular preaching and teaching of the Word of God. To be in the Word of God themselves on a daily basis. Because this is where God speaks to us. Yes, it is a duty. But brothers and sisters, this is a place where we should see that duties are not burdensome. The Word of God is life-giving. It breathes within us new life. It conforms us into the image of Christ. So a duty? Yes. Life? Also? Yes. And this is why we take joy in the duties of the Christian life. Now, there's others that we could add to this. Prayer, for example, is one. Let me move on in addition to these duties of worship to recognize that we also, as church members, have duties towards the congregation. Duties towards one another as individuals and as a corporate body. And this too can be divided between duties towards pastors and duties towards Members. So, with reference to pastors, we are called to honor them. This is a passage of scripture that we looked at several months back when we went through 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders, right, plural there, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. We're called to obey and to submit to our leaders, our elders, our pastors, as those who are laboring for our spiritual good. So in Hebrews chapter 13, 
The author there is giving instructions to the church on a life that pleases God. How do you please God? And one of the things he says in verse 17 is, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now this does not mean that pastors are to be obeyed without question. This is not some call to a kind of cult-like obedience where whoever the leader is, is never questioned. I mean, I don't have some divine authority built within me. And no pastor does. The assumption here is that the leaders are grounding their instructions in the authority of the Word of God, such that to obey their instruction is nothing more than to obey the Word of God. So inasmuch as a pastor gives a charge or an exhortation or command to obey, insofar as it accords with the Word of God, you submit. It's the very same thing as parents are training up their children, right? Parents are are leading their children towards a life of God-honoring obedience, And so when parents are training their children how it is to honor a mother and father, the children are to obey that instruction because it's biblical. It's ordained by God. But if mother and father was encouraging their children to be thieves, the children would have the obligation to disobey those instructions. It's the same thing within the church when it comes to pastors and members. Moreover, another thing to add is that if pastors are disregarding God themselves, if pastors are living in sin, they are to be disciplined corporately. Pastors are not excluded from the process of discipline. Paul, speaking about sinning pastors, sinning elders, in 1 Timothy 5.20, writes this, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. The obedience called for is obedience to instruction grounded in the Word of God. With reference to duties towards church members, our obligations towards one another. Nearly all of the moral commands given in the New Testament epistles are specifically related to how you treat members within your local church community. Nearly all of them. Certainly there are commands which instruct us how to treat unbelievers, right? No doubt. Jesus says very clearly that we are to love our enemies and to pray for them. That word is clear. But the vast majority of commands, especially in the letters, are about life in the local church. How do we live with one another as a local body? Consider, for example, with me, the one another statements. All throughout the New Testament, you find these commands. This is how you are to live towards one another. And these describe our duties towards one another within the context of the church. So Romans 12.10 says we are to outdo one another in showing honor. 
Romans 12.16, we are to live in harmony with one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25, there is to be no division within the church, but members should have the same care for one another. Galatians 5.13, we are to serve one another. Galatians 6.2, we are to bear one another's burdens. Colossians 3.9, we are not to lie to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we are to encourage one another and build one another up. And the examples could be multiplied over and over again. But all of these one another statements could essentially be summed up by Jesus' command that He gives to His first disciples in John 15, verse 12. This is My commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You love one another. Within the local body of Christ, love one another as I have loved you. You. And how has He loved us? Verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. When we become disciples of Christ, and when we unite ourselves to a local body of believers, we are saying that my life is no longer my own. It no longer belongs just to me. I am a servant of the King. I go and I do what He commands me to do. And He commands me to love His people with my entire life just as He loved me. Christ loved us by giving His life to us. So that implies, right, that probably the regular experience within the local church as we seek to love one another is that it's not going to be convenient. Things are going to run up against our schedules, against our desires. Maybe we would prefer to be doing other things rather than helping a brother and sister in Christ. But call friends to be a local church and to have fellowship that is found in the local church is to love one another as Jesus loved us. Mark Dever, a Southern Baptist pastor in Washington, D.C., recently said, when you join a church, you are saying, these people's discipleship is my business and mine, theirs. These people's discipleship is my business and mine, theirs. Friends, the church is not just an institution created by Christ to give us a better social life. It's an ever-growing kingdom. It's an ever-growing kingdom equipping us to prevail against the gates of hell. It is an ever-growing kingdom equipping us to go forth and wage a good war against sin and the kingdom of darkness. Which means we need each other. You can't live the Christian life in isolation. It doesn't work biblically. It doesn't work practically. And it by no means works spiritually 
in any sense of the word. Now, in addition to all of these one another statements, summed up by the command to love, it's worth noting another way Scripture teaches us how to love one another. Still under the same umbrella of loving one another. But how, how can we do this? this? This one is very practical. That's one of the things we're often looking for, right? How can I practically love my brothers and sisters? What can I do practically to obey Christ and to fulfill His commands to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Here it is. You fulfill your duty as a church member to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and thereby to honor God and to give glory to God and to please Him when you come to church. That's it. When you gather. When you come and gather with the people of God. When you gather to worship God, you are fulfilling this command to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some would call this church attendance. I prefer the language of gathering and assembling and meeting together because that is the language that we find in Scripture, but this is what it is. Church attendance. Now you might think, you might think that something like church attendance, right, would fit better under the category of duties of worship, right? This is our, this is how we come together and we worship God together. Wouldn't that naturally fit under a category of duties of worship? rather than duties towards one another. And in a sense, that is right. Gather together, we worship God. But Scripture actually connects our gathering together with loving one another. Scripture directly connects the assembling of the body of Christ with being there for one another and stirring one another on to love and good works. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says this. This is written, friends, to a church suffering under persecution, threat for following after Christ. There's not an indication that any of them have suffered to the point of shedding their blood, but there is extreme pressure on this early church that the letter of Hebrews is written to, to deny the faith or to modify it to make it more palatable in the surrounding culture. So so they have pressure here, right, not to obey Christ. And this is what Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25 says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here, we have Scripture addressing how we can love one another and stir up one another to love even more. And it gives us the practical way of doing this. Very practical. With a negative and a positive statement. Negatively, you don't stir up one another 
And you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, it says, by neglecting to meet together. You don't fulfill the command to love by absenting yourself from God's people. On the positive side, when you do meet together, when you do assemble to worship God, you encourage one another. That's that's practical. That's that's real world experience. You encourage one another by this simple act. In other words, church attendance is not about how you're feeling that day. I'm not talking about illnesses and sicknesses and things which in the providence of God keep you from the body of Christ. I'm talking about emotionally and spiritually. And maybe physically if you're just tired. Church attendance and gathering together is not about how you feel. It's not about whether or not you need a spiritual pick-me-up this week. If you've had a bad week, you want to go to church so that you can be encouraged and you can have a pick-me-up. Or even if you've had a good week and you want that good week to keep on going, so you're going to go to church this week. It's not about that. Church attendance is about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ as you fellowship with one another and sing the praises of God to one another. We encourage one another as we sing the truths of God to one another. It's very much as though we are speaking these things to each other. When we are singing, He will hold me fast. We are saying this to one another. He will hold you fast. You cling to the cross. You cling to Christ, brother and sister, and He will hold you fast. We encourage one another by our presence. You see, often, often the mindset we have when it comes to church gatherings is totally oriented around ourselves. It's totally self-centered. We don't live as though the discipleship of our brothers and sisters in Christ is our own. The kinds of thought processes we work through when we're deciding whether or not to meet together with God's people normally amounts to some form of whether or not I feel like it. Me, I feel like it. Do I feel like driving today? Am I tired? What are my other plans? Is there something I'd rather be doing? Friends, let me ask you this. Have you ever asked yourself the more biblical question? The question informed and arising out of Hebrews 10. Will my neglecting to meet together with the people of God encourage or discourage my brothers and sisters of Christ today? Will it stir them up to love and good works Or will it tear them down? Will I be loving them as Jesus loves me? Or will I love them with the love of the world? The love that passes. The love that is self-serving. Am I encouraging or am I discouraging the people whose discipleship I have made my own? Friends, this this is not just practical 
This is biblical truth. Do you realize that it's often just your presence that can be a great encouragement to your brothers and sisters? Just your presence. Not what you say. Not what you do. Just seeing one another can be a great encouragement to someone who may be struggling mightily in their spiritual life and in their walk with Christ and in their love for the church. Your presence can go a long way in encouraging your brothers and sisters. Especially as we see in the context of Hebrews chapter 10, it can go a long way in helping your brothers and sisters persevere to the end. Helping them along until the end. You have a duty, a moral obligation as a church member, not just to be concerned with your own interests, but with the the interests of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And gathering together with the people of God is a very real and concrete way of doing this thing. Again, like I said, we often look, how can I love my brothers and sisters this week? This is a way that you can do it. You can encourage them by being present in their lives. Well, I said that we would also look at benefits. Church members today uh, have many benefits that we could point to, that we could find in Scripture. But just for the sake of time, allow me to close with just this one. This one benefit. It's a benefit you might not think of readily. I would imagine that the more obvious benefits of being a member of a local church would include things like fellowship and friendship and growing in the Word of God and potlucks. Of course, weight-wise, I don't know if that's a benefit. Here's a vitally important benefit, though. It may be a little less obvious. Church membership is one of the means that God has designed to give us assurance that we have truly believed on Him with a saving faith. Church membership is the way or a way that God has designed to give to us as the people of God assurance of salvation. That's what I'm speaking of here. How do I know that my belief in Christ is a life-giving belief in Christ. We know that there is false faith. How do I know that my belief in Jesus is genuine? Assurance of salvation, friends, is not just a private matter. Knowing that I have truly been born again and been raised from the dead to enjoy new life in Christ is not just a private matter. There is a private aspect to it. There is an internal, subjective reality to it. That is, that is unquestionable. As we cry out to God as our personal Father, our adoptive Father, His Holy Spirit, we are told, bears witness together with ours that we are indeed children of God. That's what Paul says in Romans and Galatians. And that is private. That is subjective. That is an internal experience. But that is not the only means that we have to know that we have assurance before God. 
And assurance, friends, is a very important thing. Assurance will determine whether or not your salvation will have joy or not. Whether or not your security will be confident and your boldness will arise out of it. It's not just internal. It's not just private. Scripture also teaches us that there is an external, corporate means by which we are assured that we are the children of God. And it's through the church. It's through life in the local church. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Very well-known passage for many. The Apostle John says there, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, Often, we read that passage as though John is simply saying, if you are a believer in Jesus... If you have professed faith in Jesus, then by virtue of your belief, you should know that you have eternal life. But that's not what John actually said, is it? John actually points us back to other things he's written as evidences to know we have eternal life. He says, again, I write these things that you might know you have eternal life. What are these things? What are the these things he is referring to? Well, these things in the context of 1 John refers to everything that precedes 1 John 5.13. In other words, the letter of 1 John. These are the things that I have written so that you might know you have eternal life. And these things scribe life within the local church. Let me just give you a sampling. 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, 12, If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. One more, 1 John 4, 21, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. These are the kinds of things John says he wrote that we might know we have eternal life. This is John's assurance test. And clearly, how we love one another in the church, according to John, plays a major part in whether or not we have true assurance. We might have self-assurance. We might assure ourselves before God without any actual biblical basis, but according to what John says... The life that you live in the church, loving your brothers and sisters, is one of the means by which you know whether or not you have believed on Him in truth. If we are absent from the local body of Christ, if we're not in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters, if we're not loving them by our actions, and if indeed we are living ourselves in sin, we have no real basis for having assurance of salvation before God. God, however, clearly desires that we do have assurance. 
and through it that we would experience the joy of salvation. That is exactly why 1 John was written, to give us true assurance. But he has so designed things that this joy of salvation and this assurance comes through being a part of life in the local church. So we're speaking of duties here, right? We're speaking of moral commands. But as the Word of God says, these commands are not burdensome. These commands, these duties are calls to enjoy the life that God has given you in Christ. There is a way, right, that's often lived out practically, wherein perhaps we have genuinely received Christ, but the life we are living is so contrary to Him that there's no joy. There's no life. The duties that we have been given as church members towards one another in the worship of God, these duties, friends, are the way that fellowship and unity and life that is loving and beautiful within the local church are developed. A right understanding of church membership together. Would you pray with me?